So a few words that were sung today that I just want to make sure we understand what we've been saying. When it says, Alleluia, you are literally saying in the simplest of form, praise God. Praise God. So when we say Alleluia, we're saying praise God for what you have done and, and, and exalting him uh, highly. And then when we say the word Hosanna, which was the term that was being said and proclaimed as Jesus was entering into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday, that word Hosanna literally means he saves or the one who saves. And so Christ coming into Jerusalem on that day to face the final week prior to uh, his death and resurrection, they are saying and proclaiming he saves or the one who saves. Thinking, because again, the crowds were in mass because Jesus had just done the unthinkable the week before. You know, his name was known. He was known as being somebody who could heal and do some incredible things. He was known as an authoritative teacher. He had been walking around Israel for three years at this point. But something crazy happened the week prior, and that was he called a man out of the grave that had been dead for several days. And that was considered to be something unthinkable, unimaginable. And so the masses had heard about this testimony, and then they hear that Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. So they rush out, and they begin to proclaim, this truly is going to be the one to save us. Now, they're thinking probably a rescuing from Rome. They're not thinking that he's going into Jerusalem to die. No, they're thinking he's coming in to conquer. And conquer he did, but not in the means that they thought. Because he was coming to save all of mankind, not just Israel. And so it was a fascinating uh, moment, I'm sure, as the apostles are walking alongside Jesus, seeing all this happen. And, and yet, Jesus has been saying, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. And so it was, a, I'm sure, just a wondering in their minds as to how is this going to be. And so when we say Hosanna, we're singing it and stating it with the knowledge that he came to save us and not just an earthly kingdom saving. And so it's a, it's a, this is truly a day of great celebration that we can proclaim knowing this side of the cross what that saving actually looked like. My name is Tony. I'm pastor here at LAFC, and we're actually in a series out of the book of 2 Corinthians, and we're not going to leave it today because it falls very well as to where we're at in the text of 2 Corinthians into this holy week. And so I'm going to ask you to turn there uh, to 2 Corinthians, and we're going to be in chapter 10. So uh, again, we are dealing with the letter of where Paul is writing to a, a church where his relationship is fractured. It's struggling. And in the last few chapters, he's become more overt in dealing with what the issues are, what's been beneath the surface, what's below the surface. He's now bringing into the light and acknowledging it. And so he's calling upon them that it's like, listen, you have competency in Christ. You can be used to Christ in a mighty way. But they were struggling with self-esteem issues and confidence issues as a church. And then they were struggling with him. You know, he's that, that guy that, that would speak so boldly to them in letters. And then in person, 
it seemed to be very different. You know, when you're writing letters, you can get stuck in this situation where you're misunderstood. So just as an example, how many of you here in this room have written an email or a letter to someone and and you wrote it because you need to share some things that might be a little direct and, and it was completely misunderstood? It's probably a weekly basis for me. I, I don't know if it's a case of I can't write well, but it, it, I've definitely become more and more cautious that it's like, if I know I need to say something that requires truthfulness, it's hard to convey with the truthfulness of the writing to convey the spirit by which I'm trying to write by. And, and that's something that Paul is struggling with in this church because so much of language isn't just the written word or just the words that have been spoken flatlined. It's actually understood through inflection. It's understood through uh, body language. It's understood in facial expressions. Case in point, when I think about the English language, there are so many words that we don't even realize that we would take very differently based on how the word is said in the context or what the body language conveys or the facial expression conveys can totally change the term. I discovered how much of that's in my language when we had a girl from Spain live with us all of last year. And so she knew English, but when we would say certain words repeatedly, but in different contexts, they would mean something completely different. And she would look at us like, that's another one, like, that you got to, and I would realize by her face, okay, that's a word that yes means this, but if said like this, it means this. And she's looking at, okay, all right, that makes sense. So here's my, my fun one, and this is because the Hunt family uses this word all the time, and that's the word oh. Okay, just it's a simple word, but if I was to say the word oh in this manner, oh, with this face, oh, what am I conveying? I, I didn't know that, or like you're saying that and, and I didn't realize that that might be true or I, I'm surprised by that. And, and so the, the, it's new information that's coming to you that you did not know, so I didn't know that and we would say it that way. Or if I say it like this, Oh, right? Oh, I'm trying to do it twice because you can't see my face when I look over there. But that conveys like, hey, I wasn't expecting dessert. You know, like, (laughs) that's good. This is great. This is good news. I wasn't expecting that fun moment. You know, that's that's how I'd say. Or or if you like, this is (laughs) this is crazy. But if you ever Google um, this uh, videos of skateboarders crashing. You're going to do this a lot. Oh. Oh. Like that had to hurt kind of oh, right? And again, using the same word for delight and for like that, that really hurt, you know? Or in this case, uh, uh, oh. You know what I mean? Like, oh, I didn't realize that's what you meant or that's what actually happened. And, and, and so... Depending, again, how you inflect that or, or how you state it and what the body language is, that single word can communicate a lot differently or significantly differently from, from anything else you'd say. You get my point? 
So imagine then Paul's writing several letters to this church that is struggling and has some issues. And and he's got to make sure that they understand clearly what he's saying. But true to anything else, when you're getting letters that are very difficult to read because they're kind of putting a mirror upon you, it's easy to want to reject it because you don't get the Spirit with it, do you? It really is important to understand what the Spirit is. And so the, what, I, what I've discovered is that when you read this text, this, that what was true then is true today. That when it comes to communication, there are timeless manners by which we communicate significantly. First of all, that inflection matters significantly. How you say it, the tone of what you say it, and the manner by which you say it within, that inflection matters to make sure that the, what the intent is understood. Secondly, facial expression matters. I, I can't say certain words without, without my face communicating beyond even the words themselves. It says how significant the alarm might be if I say, you know, something that, that's alarming, but you see in the face, it's really alarming or it's just kind of alarming. And so facial expression matters. Body language matters, but here's the most important thing, that when somebody is writing to you, it is important to understand that you think through, and it's reality. You, you might not even think intentionally this way, but you will take the written words given to you and consider who it comes from based on their reputation, their heart, and their common motivations. Isn't that true? That if you receive a very blunt email or an email that's directing you in some way or critiquing you in some way, you're immediately sizing up in your mind who that came from. Is it somebody I can trust? Is it somebody whose motive is to help me be better? Or is it somebody that I think tends to want to knock me off at the knees and cut me down and, and to make me less? You're asking all those questions instantaneously. It's just natural to do so. And so we are considering the reputation, the heart, and the common motivations of an individual when they write to us. Hence the conflict that's going on between Paul and this church. He's written much, and they are struggling to receive some of the corrections that they've been given. But they know his reputation. They know his heart, and they know his motivations. And so they've been applying it, but they're having a hard time embracing him. So, yes, they're, they, they're, they're applying it because they see the wisdom in it, and they know that Paul, he really does speak on behalf of God. He's, he's never let us down, but we really just are, it's hard to receive this. And then they got people in their midst that are whispering in their ears, see, Paul doesn't love you. He's not about you. He's about himself. He's trying to raise himself up. He's trying to boast about himself. And so you got people whispering that in your ears, but yet you know Paul's motivations. You know his reputation, and you know his heart. And so you struggle with the tension of that. So let's look at chapter 10, verse 1, to see how Paul begins to address this tension of writing when you're away from them and speaking to them when you're face-to-face. So starting in verse 1, it says, By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid when I'm face-to-face with you, but bold toward you when I'm away. Again, so by the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid when I'm with you, 
but yet bold when I'm away towards you. And, and then look at verse 10, and you can see a little bit more context. He says, for some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. Okay, so he's being pretty bold. He's being honest right here, right? He's saying, you know, I know what people are telling you, that when he's away from you, he's really bold and he writes very heavy letters that are weighty and, and cause you to think very deeply and introspectively. But when he's with you, the words are that he's unimpressive and his words don't matter much. In verse 11, we know that those thoughts were placed by other people. It says such people who say these things should, should realize that when we are in our letters, what we are in our letters, we are when we are absent and we will be in our actions when we are present. I didn't read that very well, so let me read it again. So such people should realize that we are in our letters when we are absent. We will be in our actions when we are present. So this accusation that that because Paul is being bold and weighty and heavy in his letters, and then when he's in, in person, he's timid and, and he's being more passive and, and therefore unimpressive, and also his words don't matter much. What you have is you have people struggling for leadership and influence. You have a conflict of interest. You have those that are trying to say, you know, you should really more listen to us rather than Paul. And, and so they're saying, I mean, look at this. This guy writes these intense letters. And then when he's with us, he's timid. He's passive, unimpressive. Do you really want to listen to him? And so that's what's going on in their minds. And, and, yet, and I can see right here that Paul is, there's no doubt that Paul is a strong individual. There's no doubt that he was very bold. We have in the book of Acts where he was standing in front of incredibly uh, animostic type of situations where crowds were around him. We know that he is able to be bold in person. But when he was talking with this group, his, his church that he planted several years before this, he was operating with timidity. He was operating with gentleness. And he was operating with humility. And there was a reason for that. So when you look back at verse 1, it says, By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. As the one who is, again, timid when face to face with you, but bold when I'm away. So he appeals to them by the humility and gentleness of Christ. And so what is that humility of Christ and what does that gentleness of Christ look like? Because that's what he's trying to convey is this humility and gentleness. So let's turn to Philippians chapter 2. So just to your Bibles, not very far to the right. Uh, so Philippians chapter 2. And it says this, starting in verse 1 and we'll go to verse 4. It says, therefore, if any of you have encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. Okay, so it's an if-then question. If you've ever received anything from Christ, like encouragement, uh, a unification with him, if any kind of comfort from Christ, if any of his love, if any of his common sharing in the spirit, if you've experienced any of his tenderness, if you've experienced any of his compassion, 
then make the joy of your pastor or your authority figure, Paul, complete by being like Christ. Being like-minded like Christ. Having the same kind of love like Christ. Being one in spirit and of one mind. Then he says this, verse 3, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. So he talks about if you've received anything from Christ, then we're called to be like-minded, like Christ, the way Christ thinks. And then he describes how that thinking is. He begins in the beginning of verse 3 by saying then, so Christ, his mind was this, that he did nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. He did nothing. So in other words, his ambition then, if you take away the negative and go the positive, his ambition, if we're going to be like Christ, Christ's ambition was to have his effort for the gain of others. So when we think of the term ambition, ambition is what causes us to be excited or driven towards a, a, a particular end. So his ambition to a particular end was for the gain of others. Typically, when we think of our own personal ambitions, it's usually something like a career or a success point of some kind that is for yourself. But for Christ, which we're called to be like him in mind, was his ambition was for the sake of other people. And then you see this, and he didn't operate by vain conceit, or in other words, his pride wasn't about himself or his own accomplishments, but rather his pride was in the growth of other people. He took great joy. His high fives were about others growing in their faith and journey. Us, we might be high-fiving like, did you see what I just did? Did you just see what I accomplished? And then we, we take glory for ourselves, but no, for him, being like Christ, our ambition is for the gain of others, and our pride is in the excitement of seeing others grow. And then you see this at the end of verse 3, where he says that, that rather in humility... Christ valued others above himself. So valuing others above your own. His standing was secondary to our standing. He wanted to make sure that you and I could stand before God and, and be able to be heard as saying, you're my servant, you're my child, welcome into my kingdom, you're good and faithful. I mean, that's what we want to hear, and that's what Christ wanted to hear for us, is that we would be, that he valued us beyond his own standing there. He was able to give up everything else for the value of others. And lastly, the final point that he says in verse 4, it says, he didn't look to his own interests. Again, we're to be like him. He didn't look to his own interests, but he looked rather to the interests of others. Well, when you think about interest, you know, in our society, we have, we have uh, political interest groups, and they're advocating for a particular interest that they're interested in. And so their advocation is all about that issue at the cost of whatever else so that their issue can be maintained and, and be able to be moved forward, that agenda. And in this case, Christ had a primary agenda, a main agenda, and that main agenda was for you and I. That ambition, his, his excitement and his energy was all given 
for you and I. His, his, his valuing of pride wasn't about his own gain. It was, again, about you and I. And then his standing wasn't about himself. It was about our standing. And lastly, his interest, his political interest wasn't in his own being uh, up, uprised and being glorified, but it was rather glorifying the church and raising us up. Amen. We're called to be like-minded. If we're called to be like Christ, then, that, then our attitude should be about the ambition and effort towards seeing others grow in their faith. Our pride should be in the joy of watching others grow in their faith. Our value should be about others rising and growing in their faith. And our interest should be about the interests of others so that they can grow and rise in their faith. That is being like-minded like Christ. And so Paul says back in 2 Corinthians, again, going back there in chapter 10, he's saying, by the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. So he is saying, I am appealing to you by the humility of Christ, which is modeled that says, my ambition, Paul saying, my ambition is you, to see you grow. My values are to see you succeed, not about raising my name up. My interests are about the interests of this church thriving to the glory of God. I appeal to you with that heart and that motive, that attitude as under Christ. But then, that's the inner, that's the inner part of Paul, and he includes this other word, gentleness. This other word, gentleness, as being the outward expression of that humble heart. That if Paul is appealing to them with, again, the motive to see them grow and to see them rise up, to valuing them, to see their interests accomplished, then he's doing that with a gentle spirit, which would explain that when he's coming and showing up face to face, Paul isn't bashing them with his letters. He is coming and he's operating with timidity and speaking to them with a gentle and compassionate heart. And then they're like, well, what happened to the guy that's in the letters? What happened to the guy that, that's speaking in that manner? And now we're getting the gentle outward expression that, that just kind of doesn't seem to line up with what is on paper. But when you look at, at gentleness as a message of the early church, it was Peter who rose up this term. I mean, of all people, when you look at the personalities of the 12 disciples, I would say that Peter was the most brash, forward-thinking, outgoing, spoken individual of the 12. Would you agree? I, <laughs> I mean, it's just true. It, it's happened. But it was Peter who said... It was Peter who said that when we understand that this is all about the gospel advancing in the lives, the good news of Christ, the message of the cross, advancing in the hearts of those who need that message, when it's all about that, our spirit, our attitude towards them as we convey the words about the cross should be done in a particular spirit. And he says this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Peter's saying, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. So in other words, He's Lord. He's the leader. Like-mindedness, okay? It's consistent with what Paul is saying. So we're following his example. And therefore, he says this, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with what kind of spirit? Gentleness and respect. I mean, when you think about this, if we were to ask just the general public out there about their impressions of Christians, would they say that the number one spirit that they receive from Christians would be gentleness? Probably not. 
I mean, there, to be fair, we understand the media does what it can to convey a different image than what is the actual reality of the Christian church. I get that. But the reality is, is that there are many Christians who, when they share their faith, they operate from a platform of judgment and condemnation rather than a spirit of humility, recognizing, hey, I'm a sinner saved by grace. I, I, I have done nothing to be worthy of this message, but I am so thankful that God changed my life and, and God wants to change yours. And there's a gentleness that can come off when we acknowledge that we're all in need of the grace of God. And so Peter, of all people, started realizing, man, I can speak the truth and I can speak it plainly, but when it comes to dealing with people, I need to do this with a gentle spirit and a humble heart. I need to do this where I'm respecting them in a manner that they understand that I see them as a human being and that they're in need of what I needed. And so that kind of spirit is the actual uh, type of encouragement and, and armor that we're told to have as we share the gospel. And then also we see that this gentle spirit is also carried out in a different way too. Paul brings this up in Romans chapter 12 to the person who seems adversarial to you because there are people that are asking you about your faith that are doing so to entrap you. Their motive isn't to learn. Their motive is to entrap you. Their motive is to harm you or to cause you to be more doubtful. And they're just, quite frankly, an enemy of your soul. And, and there are those people, and you know sometimes by the spirit they carry when they ask the question. But what should be our attitude towards them? Gentleness and respect. It's the same thing. Again, we're to be like-minded with Christ under the gentleness and the humility that he conveys. We appeal to someone's heart, period. And then, and then here's how Paul states it and how we can be gentle towards our, the one who's actually an enemy towards us. He says in Romans 12 this, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Uh, okay, wait a second. So while they're being mean towards you, while they're being harsh towards you, you're thinking through, what, what do they need? What's their needs? Huh. And then it says, in doing this, you'll heap burning coals on your head. Now, I've heard Christians say this. This was awesome. I, I like showed them kindness, and I showed them, I, and I actually gave something to them when they were being mean towards me, and they're burning on their head now. I have to tell you, I don't think that's the intent Paul had. That our motive is so that their heads burn. Now, you need to understand what this text is actually saying. It's not talking about literal coals being thrown on the top of their head. No, in their culture at that time, that when this idea of burning coals on your head means that, that when you do something, when somebody treats you harshly and you treat, treat them with kindness, it provokes a thinking it, 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 it's like a dagger to their mind that like it exposed the mean-spiritedness of their actions. It, it causes them to be like, whoa, 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 I, I, I didn't expect that. I expected tip for tap, right? Eye for eye. I mean, that's what the world does. If I'm harsh, harsh towards you, you be harsh back towards me, and then I can show you you're just like me. But when an enemy, somebody who's trying to be cynical or to trip you up, and you treat them with kindness, you have literally seared their brain with, no, there is a difference between you and them. In that moment, it is like a burning coal on their head, and it's making them think. 
So Paul is communicating to them, knowing that, yes, in my letters, I'm being very blunt, if you will. And there's a reason for that. And when you look at this, it says, you know, in my, in my presence, in presence with you face to face, I'm timid, but bold with you when I'm away. Now, why is that so? Well, I'm on the board for Harvey Cedars Bible Conference. It's where our students go to beach camp. And we're having to write a lot of policies to keep clarity on what's appropriate with the use of rooms and the, what's appropriate for who's in those rooms, etc. We have to do that. And policies have to be very specific. Because if you choose emotive language, now the term emotive means emotional language, where you're trying to do all you can to bring all the emotion into this to try to make it feel good, the policy, then what happens is, is that when emotional language is written in a, in a code, then it, it, it leaves for misinterpretation. Because how I emote something and how you emote something is different. If I think, if I'm trying to write emotive language based on what I think you're emoting to the language, I might miss. And so it's really important that when you're giving a directive and you're giving, you know, instructions or policies, you stick, you stick to the truth. And then when you're able to elaborate on the truth, you can elaborate with the spirit you intend. So as we're dealing with groups that don't have the same view of Scripture we do, they're claiming, you know, well, your policies seem so harsh and different from the spirit that you convey. Literally, that happened this past week. Your spirit seems different from the words that you say, but yet our words did not change. It's just that they now see the heart behind it. That's just the reality. You have to give clear directives. So it's best not to over-elaborate on paper lest your motive be understood. So Paul in his letters would insert heart appeals, but he would, be at, he would be primarily between direct points, and then he would keep the appeals very short. Authoritative writings require concise and direct language so as to provide clear action steps or applicable steps or directives. Face-to-face, then, you can be more timid in spirit and convey the spirit and the humility you intend with those words. That is your opportunity. But here's the most important thing, was that last piece when I said about timeless communication is knowing the heart and the motives and the reputation of the writer— that, that, that's really true because look at verse 11 again. It says, such people should realize that when we are in our letter, what we are in our letters, when we are absent, we will be in our actions when we are present. So Paul is saying, listen, whether on paper or in action, our integrity is intact. Our motives are the same motives. When we're gentle and we're humble in spirit, in person, our, those are the motives that are behind the letters that are very direct and very concise in what's being said. So you must understand that. That, that, that as part of this, I need to be very serious about what I write in the letters because they're directed. But then you can see the spirit when I'm with you. See the tension? See how difficult this is for Paul? Is that he realizes that, that the letters, he had to be concise by what the Holy Spirit gave him, and now he's wanting them to understand it's the same Paul. It's the same Paul, the one that's been gentle with you, the same Paul that's been humble with you, the same Paul that's been respectful of you when I'm in person. But in my letters, I must be forthright so that you can understand clearly. And he's talking about that, okay, there's this undermining going on by those whispering in your ears. There's a battle going on. And we can't wage war 
in this world the way the world does. Because again, the world says tit for tat. You do it, I do it. And we respond in kind, likewise. So if you're harsh, I'll be harsh. If you're going to harm, I'll harm. That's what the world does. But our, our weapons are different. Our battle and the way we wage war culturally is different. It's under a humble spirit. It's under a gentle spirit. But we do it with a power that is not our own. So let's look at verse 2 and following. It says, I beg you that when I, when, <clears throat> I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards someone, some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in this world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power and demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And therefore, we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. So let me just stop there. It's talking about... How we do battle. And again, what's our battle? Our battle isn't just to remain pure as an individual, as some might think is the purpose of, the, of, of how we raise children. We're not called to raise our children to be pure. That is not our aim. Hear me in this. I'm not saying our goal and our aim isn't so that our children become pure, but rather that our children become like Christ. When you have that aim, then you know that it is about holiness and purity, but it's to a particular end. And what was Christ about? That 100th sheep that is not in the fold. When we raise our kids just to be pure vessels, but with no mission in mind, we are not raising them like Christ. We're raising them to be Pharisees. So hear me in this. And that's what Paul is saying is that we're called to do war differently from the rest of the world. We're called to do this for the sake of other souls being met. So what does God give us the power to do? He says several things. He says in verse 4 that he gives us the power to demolish what seems impenetrable. Strongholds is the term he uses. So when a stronghold, that's a term in Scripture that says you can't penetrate it. It's a stronghold. It's, it's, defen- it, it's, it's, a, it's a defensible place for the enemy. And it's far, for us, we can't hardly come against it. And what he says here is that it re- in regards to the human soul, what person might seem impenetrable through God, that person can go to their knees and declare that Jesus is Lord. It doesn't matter how strong you think their heart is, that if you're operating by the Holy Spirit and you pray and the Holy Spirit begins to then work in that individual's life, that even the the coldest of hearts and the most defiant of hearts can become penetrable for the sake of the gospel. And then he says that we also have this power to demolish arguments with words and spirit that the, that the, that the world would say is confusing because they do not understand. We can, we can try to, uh, to, to operate as the world does and we become confused because they want to be mass confusion. But with this, the power to set ourselves up against confusion and literally speak in truth with clarity. And so we also have the power to confront anyone who might say, I defy that God exists. He's saying there are people that set themselves up against the the knowledge that there is a God. And the reality is this, that, that the power that is in us, that God wants to do work through us for the sake of somebody else's soul, is that he will give you the power to even speak to the most defiant of atheists. 
in the relationships that I've had with, with atheists over the years, it, not a single one that I've had a relationship with would not come to a place. Uh, every single one of them would come to a place to acknowledge that there might be a power and that there might be a, 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 a being that has set everything in place. But if I acknowledge that with my mouth, then I must go on a journey to figure out who God is and what do they want from me. You see, when you're an atheist, you're avoiding the conflict of, of thinking that there's something else out there that would expect anything of you. And so when, when you're talking to somebody who sets themselves up against this idea of the knowledge that there's a God, God gives you the power to poke through that stance so that they can hear that there is a God and that they need him. And then it says that we can have the power to take captive every thought because there are a lot of thoughts and emotions that like to set itself up against us. And emotions are not facts, okay? Emotions are uninvited thoughts that come. And, and sometimes we get into trouble when we start making our emotions facts. I had a bunch of psychologists that were sitting in this section in first service. And when I said, our emotions facts, and they, they, they about came out of their seat. Like, no, emotions aren't facts. But we often operate under those emotions as being fact, and we treat them as absolutes, and then it gets us into trouble. Emotions are uninvited. They, they, they just happen. And what we need to understand is that some of those emotions can be self-destructive, and they, and they can cause you to be doubtful and, and to go into a place that becomes very dark. And the reality is, is that we can take those thoughts captive by the power that is within us from Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. We can take those thoughts captive that want to make us ineffective, and we become effective messengers of the gospel. And then lastly, he says that we also then will be given the power to be a part of God's judgment. That there will be a day when we, we will have been able to become that overcomer, as it says in Scripture. And then as part of that, that there will be a part of God's judgment here on this earth. That it says that the, that the army of Jesus Christ will be of the saints of old. And we will be a part of that great army that will get to come when Christ comes as victorious king and establishes his kingdom once and for all. That will be a cool day. But lastly, in conclusion, so as Paul is speaking, that not only do we have this power that was within us, but this is for the sake of seeing the gospel advance. So look what he says starting in verse 7. He says, you are judging things by appearances. If anyone is confident that I belong to Christ, they should consider, again, that we belong to Christ just as much as they do. So even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord gave us for building you up rather than tearing you down, I will not be ashamed of it. I do not want to seem to be trying to frighten you with my letters. For some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he's unimpressive and speaking amounts to nothing. Such people should realize that we are in our letters when we are absent. We will be in our actions when we're present. We do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves. They are not wise. We, however, will not boast beyond proper limits, but will confine our boasting to the sphere of service of God himself has assigned to us a sphere that also includes you. We are not going too far in our boasting as we would be the case if we had not come to you, for we did not get as far as you with the gospel of Christ. Neither do we go beyond our limits by boasting of work done by others. Our hope is this, as your faith continues to grow, our sphere of activity among you will greatly expand so that, this is key, so that we can preach the gospel in regions beyond you. 
For we do not want to boast about work already done in someone else's territory, but let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. So we have this final declaration uh, from Paul as to the purpose of his ministry among them. Keep in mind, under the umbrella of gentleness and humility. So humility being that, that Paul was all about this church going forward, even if it cost him his own pride, even if it cost him his own standing. It was about their interests and for their gain than it was about his personal gain. So let us then not boast about who's higher or who's lower, but rather boast about Christ alone. Because what it says in verse 7 is it's not based on appearances. Now Paul said that when I'm in in person, I'm unimpressive to some. Now why is that so? Because he was short. You may not know this, but he was a very short man. It's listed in scripture as being short. His name even means short. I mean, that stinks. There's a lot of great names in scripture, but then he's short. And that's what he gets known for. And, you know, some people think that the more pleasant your appearance, the more powerful you are. I mean, look at how the first king of Israel was thought to be so good is because Saul stood a head taller than everybody else. Well, for my five foot nine and some change, that's not very encouraging. So now when when Joel stood up here last week, he's six foot five. That's an impressive stature. You know, it's like, yeah, you could say that appearance matters something, but it really doesn't. In fact, the more likely that God could be glorified is when the appearance does not seem to matter at all. That's why God chose the unlikely to be his advocates for the gospel going forward. So be careful then not to be confident so much in Christ that you do so at the expense of determining who else is in Christ. He calls that out in verse 8, that there are people going around saying, he's not a part of Christ, he's not with Christ, he's not a part of Christ, and they're basing it on appearance, standing, impression, and so on. And Paul's saying, that's ridiculous. We just should not boast about who's higher than another, but rather being confident that our boasting is in the work of God. Because in verse 12 it says, it's not good to compare yourself to others. And then it says if, in verse 17, if you boast, it should be about the work of God in all of us, not the work of God in you, in you alone. And then ultimately in verse 15 he says, it's all about advancing the gospel. It's all about advancing the gospel, which is why it's so important to understand that if we're going to be like Christ in mind, that there is a humility in our soul that's about the advancement of the gospel in the lives of other people. It's not about you, it's about others. And then the outward energy is, I'm going to do so with a gentle spirit. I'm going to do so with a gentle spirit so that, that they can see that there's a heart that is humble and, and, and that, it's, that it's mutual, that, that we all want to experience the grace of God. So God forgive us if our boasting causes us to fall. God forgive us if our boasting then causes others to fall. God forgive us if our our primary attitude that people see in us is not gentleness but rather harshness. And God forgive us if the motive behind our speaking of the gospel is not humble but rather prideful. God forgive us. Let's pray. So God, I just ask that the spirit by which Christ conveyed himself, that there was that humble ambition, that humble uh, spirit that, that was to esteem us, his humble interest was for our benefit. God, that we would embrace that as our mission as well. 
that we'll be like-minded, being like Christ, that we would, the way we treat other people, the way we encourage other people, the way we communicate to other people will be out of a humble spirit for their sake. And Lord, that we will do so then with gentleness. May we speak truth with the true spirit of Christ, not with the harshness of judgment. For Christ didn't come to condemn, he came to save. May we have that lens as we interact with other people. To your glory.